So, um, yeah, this is what I call the thick soup of theology. So get your Bibles ready to go. We're going to spend, if you can look down here, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 15, 16, 17, 21, 25, 26, or you will not understand Romans chapter 9. Uh, so we will. We're going to get a little Old Testament into us today. I want to start with a prayer, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. And we'll kind of recap a little bit the close out of eight so that we can, can enter into nine appropriately. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, begin today, we begin in your name. This is a day you've made. You've called, called us to set it aside. And really, Lord, you've set it aside. You Sabbathed on the seventh day. And you call us to, to take all the worries in our minds and put them in your hands, to take all of the anxious thoughts we have and put them in your hands to take the, the stuff that's inside of us that's just holding us back and put it all into your hands and to rest in you, rest in your promises. Today we're going to get to hear a little bit about a promise made a long time ago and what it means uh, for us uh, today. I'm going to just pray, Lord, for your clarity, your insights as we go through this section of Romans uh, it's not all that easy for us. Uh, and yet, Lord, I, I believe that it's such an essential part of Scripture for us to, to really get inside of us. So we'll just ask that you be with us as we uh, pick up your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's say amen. All right. Let's go ahead and turn to chapter 9. I am going to recap a little bit. Chapter 8 is closing. And I think it's important always to come back to this idea that when Paul is writing the book of Romans, he's not writing a theological treatise. A lot of people try to read Romans like that. Like, hey, this is just a theological treatise. Let's extract some theology out of it. That's not its purpose. It is a missional book that comes around what God has called the church to be and what he's called the church to do. What is the mission of the church? This has always been interesting to me. Um, there was a time in my life where I spent a lot of time with an organization called uh, PLI, Pastoral Leadership Institute. And uh, that meant for us in Lincoln that we would have groups of, of pastors that would come and visit from all over the country. And I would always start the same way. I'd say, I'm, one, I'm, I'm no different than any of you, and none of us are different than anyone else. We're all in God's hands trying to figure out what it means to be the church. I said, but I'm very interested in how you would, how you would describe the mission of the church. In some way, shape, or form, most churches are able to go back to and to hold on to what we call the Great Commission. Right? Well, the mission of the church, we, we don't make it up. God gave it to us. What is it? Well, go make disciples of all nations, right? And um, somehow we even mistranslate that, but we, we, we get the point. Make, making disciples of, of all peoples. Um, okay, that's good. So what's the mission of your church? How do you describe that? Interestingly, a lot of churches will come up with words that they try to, to use to, to in, kind of catch the meaning of that. Great Commission. So you'll hear people say something like this. Mission of our church, someone says, is to reach up, reach out, and reach in. That sounds kind of fun. What, what do you mean by that? Well, we're reaching up to God for a relationship, then we're reaching out to the world to bring people into a relationship. We reach into one another to strengthen one another. I'm like, okay, that's, that sounds good. What's your, what's, how, how do you guys say it? Next group says, well, we're, we're building a bigger heaven tomorrow by the way we live today. That sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? We're building a bigger heaven tomorrow by how we live today. Kind of a fun mission statement. Another church, big church, uh, says it this way. We are called to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to hear. Go, make disciples of all nations. Build a bigger heaven tomorrow by how you live today. Reach up, out, in. Make a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to hear. Anthropocentric. What does that mean? The focus is upon who as the doer. Who? Man. 
Anthropocentric means the focus, the, cent- the centricity of the, the words mean here's where we're pointing to. You go. And in fact, a lot of us kind of carry that idea around inside of us that, look, I'm the, I'm the, one, I'm the, I'm the one who makes a disciple. Really? How many of you made? Because I'm, I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm at my ripe old age, I'm still sitting at zero. I've made none. I've watched God make quite a few. I've made none. And so one of the things that I always try to do when you come to what it means to, to, to be in the mission of, of God, when you start to read a book like Romans, it is not anthropocentric. It's what? It's theocentric. It's about what God is doing, what he does in our lives. That's, that's one of the benefits of the book is it's steeped in this theology that says it's not us. It's, it is about him. Um, so when I'm working with churches and we're trying to develop mission statements, that's one of the things I try to do is let's, let's shift this from being man-centered to, to being God-centered so that we have an appreciation of what really we're, we're called to do. We really just join God in his mission, right? He's the one carrying it out. We join him in his mission. His mission is bringing people uh, into a saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Paul grabs hold of this one word here in chapter 8 that I think kind of captures the essence of what that means, what it means to be in mission. In verse 18, he uses this term. I'm at the end of chapter 8. Pathemata. Pathemata. And it's a word that really does capture the essence of what it means to be joining God in his mission. Pathemata um, is a word that has a little bit of an English word underneath it that most of us are familiar with. It's the word pathos, right? So if I said, hey, you know what? That Larry over here, he's got a lot of pathos over the abortion issue. What am I actually saying? He's got a lot of pathos over the abortion issue. What am I saying? Yeah, he's got passion in him. He's got it inside of him, okay? Pathemata is referring to that. Um, here are, here's how I describe it to people. Pathemata means, number one, to see every soul as sacred. When I'm walking around, I'm looking at people. What do I see? They're outside or they're inside? Most of us in the world try to look at people's outside. That's not joining Jesus Christ's mission. He doesn't go and look at your outside. He looks at what's here. Do you, what's inside of you? What, what do you believe? Pathemata means to see the brokenness of man through the fall. So every person you look at, what do I see? Someone who's broken. Someone who's part of the fall. Somebody who's gone through uh, the, the, the same experience that I've gone through. That recognition that in me there is sin and brokenness. And I, I really try to do that. That's the way Jesus Christ lived. He's walking around on planet Earth. He sees people. He sees souls. He sees brokenness. It means that I desire that every soul come to know Jesus Christ as their Redeemer and their Restorer. I have this inside of me. I want every single soul that I see to come to know Jesus Christ as their Redeemer and their Restorer. And here's what I want you to see is this all of that, pathemata, being the church in mission is heavy. It is not easy. It is hard because all of a sudden you are now walking on the same path, pathemata, as Jesus Christ walked down. And if you remember, you are starting to feel that burden. I feel that burden. I feel that burden. I think, oh my goodness, that person doesn't know Jesus. Oh my goodness, that person stands antithetical to Jesus. Oh my goodness, that person is living in such a trap of sin that it's destroying their life. And I feel all of that, and it is heavy. And so, uh, what gets you through it? What is it that gets you through all of that? Well, what Paul's been doing in chapter 8, he says, here's what will get you through it. When you're on that pathway, and you're, you're really seeking to, to, to help others come to know Jesus Christ, what gets you through are these things. Start with the end in mind. Understand where we're going. This is about eternity. Understand that the Spirit is interceding for you. You're not on your own. The Spirit inside of you is interceding for you. Understand that Jesus is praying for you. 
That's verse 34, chapter 8. I think it's one of the more beautiful verses of Scripture. Is here's Jesus. He's praying for me in the midst of all this. Understood that you are loved by God. And what Paul understands is he, ne- he needs that. I need the Spirit praying for me. I need to know that God is my strength because I feel the weight. I feel the heaviness of going out into a world that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to feel that heaviness with me. Why, why is it so heavy for Paul? Why is all of this so heavy for Paul? This is where chapter 9 enters in. What is it that burdens Paul more than anything else? Well, let's kind of start into chapter 9, and you, you immediately get to see what is burdening Paul. All right? So let's kind of go up to the very first part of it. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is how he's describing what it means to be the church. Um, We do it almost opposite of that in America. Join the church and it's going to make you happy. Join the church, you're going to feel good because Jesus is with you. Join the church, and Jesus is going to supply all your needs. He's going to take care of you. I'm like, what ever happened to these words right here? Paul says, here's what it means to bear this mission, to pathemata, to walk on the same path as Jesus Christ. He says, I have great sorrow. That's what it means. The word, by the way, here, um, lupe, uh, lupe, lupe is a wolf. Right? And so um, when you think about it, what it means to have great sorrow, I want you to hear it. Uh, we get to hear it in our home. As our dog has aged, and it has aged, we have not aged. My grandkids have aged. We have not aged. My dog has aged. As he, as he ages, he gets, I think, more scared. I think he has like a psychological condition. I'm thinking of sending him to Rick Holes and have him work on him because he seems to have like this, like this um, disorder when you're uh, like separation dis- anxiety disorder. And so when we leave, he goes like this. And I'm like, my goodness gracious. We go for two or three hours. We come back. Uh, we're, st- we're, we're getting ready to open the door. I still hear him. I'm like, oh, my goodness gracious. Send that dog to the psychologist. Uh, this is the word that Paul is using here is it doesn't go away. I got this pain in me, and it doesn't go away. It just is I, I howl over this thing. He says, I have unceasing anguish. By the way, the Greek there is so fun to me because the the word that's actually used there means this. I don't have anywhere to put this anguish in my heart. There's nowhere to put it. I can't put it down. It's just, it's it's holding on to me. I've got this anguish. Well, Well, Paul, what is your anguish over? Watch these next words. I think they're some of the most significant words in the entire Bible. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Why is everything so heavy for Paul? Why does Paul need the Spirit to intercede, Jesus to pray for, to know that he's loved? Why? Because he feels the burden of what it means to be the church. Sometimes I'll ask people this. When is the last time you really felt a burden over lost people? I honestly think that a lot of churches live without it. They have, they have other burdens. Like our, our burden is for how many people we can get in church. Our burden is can we make the budget meet? Our budget is do we have the best programs? I'm like, well, whatever happened to lost people? How much time does your church spend on their knees, on their faces, praying for people who do not know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? Do we get this? That, in the end, it doesn't matter how many programs we've had, how many people came. What matters is, does someone know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? That's it. There's, no, there's nothing else that matters. And for Paul, he knew that. And what he's saying to the church is, you lose your way when you forget that. 
we ought to feel a heaviness, a burden that calls us together and calls us together not as just individuals who all kind of come and clump together and then go back to our individual lives, but as a we, as a corporate body that say, dear God, we are living in a city that you can just observe it. You can just see it in Grand Island. Larry, you can see it, right, Kevin? You can see this. It's getting more and more and more and more secular, and it's, 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 it's antithetical to God. That's what it is. And I look at people and I'm like, goodness gracious, Lord, convict me to have a conviction so deep inside of me that I howl, not because I'm not connected to you, but because someone else doesn't know you. And I, I, I hurt for them. I long for them. In Paul's case, that was so significant that he literally says, here's what I would do, God. I'll make a deal with you right now. Send me to hell. Send me to hell. But save my kinsmen. Save Israel. Now, my whole life, I've always said, God, I don't, I don't have that. I really, I, I have, I, I've honestly prayed this many times. I'm like, God, I want to have that sense inside of me that that, that deep because it, it is the heart of a missionary. And it is what caused Paul to be an unstoppable force for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what allows him to stand over the city of Rome with all of its grandeur and all of its power and all of its might and all of its money. And he has nothing. He's a slave. And he stands over that city and says, this city will come to know Jesus Christ. And he says it with conviction. He says it as, as strongly as a Tom Osborne would stand over his team and says, you know what? That team is going down. That's the conviction in him. And he's saying to God, God, let's make a deal. Send me to hell, but rescue my fellow brethren. Why? What does he see? What's happened to Israel? I think the thing that makes chapter 9 so significant is we start to understand who and what Israel is and is not as Paul mourns for, cries out for, howls for this body of people that he's a part of from a blood kinship relationship. Here's how he describes the Israelites. Verse 4, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises break. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh the Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. Think about that. What, do, what does Israel have? Now I'm going to make a distinction here early on that's not in your biblical texts and it's my, it's my interpretation uh, and it's just my way of trying to use a technique to, to, to start to Get something into your, your minds. Okay? Here it is. 9-4. They are Israel. Now notice what I just did. Small I. They are Israel. I'm doing that very intentionally because I, I want you to see Israel from a different perspective today. Here's what he's saying about Israel. Israel are, are who? They're the blood kinship. They're the people of God that God chose out of all people to be his light in the world. Here's what he says. They receive sonship, adoption from me. In other words, there's this moment before creation, right? When God says, I'm going to use one nation of people to bring my gospel, my hope to the rest of the world. And he chooses Israel. And he says, I'm adopting you to be my son. He gives them a sign of that sonship, and it's the sign of circumcision, right? Uh, I am always with you. The endless circle of circumcision. I am always with you. I've placed my mark upon you. You belong to me, not because of what you've done. God didn't look down at the earth and say, uh, I think I'm going to try to pick the best people I can. Uh, no, he said, I'm going to pick that group of people. Why? Take it up with God in heaven. Seriously, take it up with him in heaven. 
He chose it because he chose it. That's it. That's, that's, that's it. They received sonship. They received his presence. Okay? Our Bible say it a little bit differently. It says they, they belong to the adoption, the glory. What does glory always translate? Doxa means his presence. God is present in a very viable, almost physical way amongst Israel. Right? So if we could go back into the, into the Bible and find ourselves living it out, the Israelites are the people who would say what? God dwells amongst us. Where? In his holy temple. Right? Can I walk into that holy of holies? Sure. Go ahead. We'll drag you out dead. Well, what, what's going to kill me? God? Where is he? He's there. He's present. How can God be present there? He's God. He made everything. He's a, yep, but he's present here. He's amongst us. Doxa. Glory. He's present. His presence we see throughout the Bible, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant, or whether it's the fire, you know, by night and the, you know, the uh, cloud by, by day. We see him present amongst Israel. They received his presence. They received his, the next word here is, they received his covenants. His covenants. Well, they did. The Abrahamic in Genesis 12, the Mosaic in Exodus 19, the Levitical in Numbers 25, and the Davidic in 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are places in the Bible you can go and say, look, God made a covenant with Israel right there. He made another covenant with Israel right there. He made another covenant with Israel right there. He made another covenant with these are the promises. So he's saying, who is Israel? It's this body of people selected by God who, who have received his presence, who have received his promises, who have received what else? His law. That's what defined, defined Israel. We, we are the bearers of the law. Who received his promises. We're the bearers of his promise. Who received the patriarchs. Where did the fathers come from? They came out of Israel. Who received even in the flesh Jesus Christ, God over all. This is who Israel is. So if that's true, what's the problem? Here's the defining problem. Come back with me to the text. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I want you to get that in your heads. So read it again. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, can you start to see why I'm using a little eye here? Small eye? Small eye, I always allow it to represent the physical body of people who are born of the seed of Israel, right? Big eye, Israel, are a different group of people. They're born of a different seed. What is that seed? Faith. I can be a small I, an Israelite, and not be what? A capital I, Israelite. Because guess what? I am physically an Israelite, but I don't have faith in Jesus Christ. See what happened there? I'm, are you Israel? Yes, I'm Israel. Oh, really? Well, listen to this. Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. No, you're not Israel. Yes, I am. I am Israel. No, you're, no, you're not. I have the circumcision. We, I bear the law. My blood group, we have the promises. We are the people, of the, we, are the, we have the patriarchs. To us belong all of the promises of God. You're not Israel. Yes, yes, I am. No, you're not. Why? You don't have faith in Jesus Christ. And so the, Paul is making a distinction here that is critical for us to understand. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Whew, that's pretty, that's pretty stunning words to speak. You're, you're, not, you're not a child of Abraham because you come from, again, a, a genetic seed. You actually become a son of Abraham through what? A different seed. There is a different seed. It is the seed of faith. And guess what? That is of God's doing. And so what Paul is doing here is he's starting to paint a picture for us of why he has this burden. 
Why is he standing before God saying, send me to hell, but save my kinsmen? Because he's looking at his kinsmen, and they all believe they're saved. They do. They all believe they're saved. We're saved. Sometimes I look at the church in America today, and, and people say, oh, yep, we're all saved. We're all going to heaven. I'm like, well, let me, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever read these words in the Bible where Jesus is, is returning? He's coming back. And all these people who believe they're saved are running towards him like, Lord, Lord, Lord. And he looks down at him and he says, I don't know you. You ever read those words? What does that mean? Scary, isn't it? You're either born of the seed, which is faith. You have faith in Jesus Christ. I trust him as my Savior. Or you don't. And uh, if you don't, you may be in a church. You may be Israel, small I. But guess what? You are not Israel, capital I. You are not a person who is born of the seed of faith. Now, to really underscore this, what Paul does is he paints a little picture that will end up taking us back into the Old Testament. And it'll take you a little bit of mind power to kind of stay up with it and really understand where he's coming from because these words for most people get confusing, confusing. Take a look at, uh, go back to uh, verse 7. And let's finish it out. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay? You can see the seed there, right? Not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated, huh? <laughs> what did Paul just do? He's speaking to who? Again, his primary audience is our folks who are Christians, but they're converted Jews. There are, are there Gentiles amongst the, the, the people that Paul is speaking to? Well, yes, there, there are. But primary, there's, he's speaking to a, a, a primarily a formerly Jewish audience. And he's taking them on a little bit of a journey. And where he's taking them is back into the book of Genesis, which um, is where I'm going to have you turn to. And we're going to take just a little trip down memory lane and, uh, and then come back and wrap it up so that you, you have a good understanding of what's going on here. Start with Genesis 15. This is where God makes a covenant with, with Abram. I'm just going to walk through this and uh, kind of try to stay with me on this. Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abram. Let's go back and take a look at it. He says, all right, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield, your reward. It will be great. Abram said, oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continued childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And behold, you've given me no, no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Here's Abram. He's kind of getting up there in age. He has no heir. God comes to him and says, I'm your reward. It's, it's going to be very great. Well, for a Jew, what is your greatest reward? Your children. So he hears God say that, and he speaks back to God. He says, well, that's a great deal, God, but guess what? I'm childless. I don't, I don't have a child. In fact, right now, I'm going to have to heir my household to a household servant. Archaeologists, by the way, have discovered um, some standard Hittite um, uh, covenants that were utilized uh, in the ancient world to, to do just that, to, to send your properties or air your properties to someone who is a household servant. So it's, it makes sense to Abram that that's what's going to happen. So verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. 
your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. I always picture that moment. See, one, two, three, four. Okay. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring breathe. Now look at this, very significant. And he believed the Lord. That's the seed we're looking for. That's faith. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Everything about this scene is what God is doing in Abram. The reason Abram believes God isn't because it makes sense. Oh yeah, I'm going to have that many kids. That's going to make a lot of sense. I'm 75 years old. I'm going to have that many kids. No. He believes him because God has worked faith in him. And God says, this is righteousness. Faith is righteousness. Okay? Continue on. He says, he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord, how am I, how am I to know that I'll possess it? He said, bring me a heifer. This is interesting. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. He brought them, cut them in half, laid each half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of the prey came, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said, Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. But, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with a great possession. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephiam, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, they were really bad. And the Jebusites. Here's what I want you to take out of that so far. Okay? Because we're, we're on this journey. Here's Abram. God comes. This is the moment he's making a covenant. The word covenant means what? To cut. I want you to picture that. I'm going to make a promise. But in order for this promise to be fulfilled, there must be blood. This is a bloody mess. Chop, 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 chop. There's death. Here comes, in the middle of the night, this smoking fire pot and torch that passes between the two cut pieces of each of the animals that are set out as a sacrifice. It is God's way of saying, I am present. I am here. I am making a covenant with you and for you. Of all the different kind of covenants that you can study in ancient times, there's one called a susantry vassal covenant. This is a susantry vassal covenant. Here's what it means. The vassal is the servant. He has no power. The one who has the power is the susantry, is the one who is the sustainer. God is saying, I have all the power here. I'm making a promise to you. It doesn't require anything back from you. Right? My promise is to you and for you. It's not based upon what you do. It's based upon what I do. Abram believes this. He trusts this. He says, I'm going to have a son. Go to verse 16, chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. That's a deception. God makes you a promise. You ever want to rush it? God says, this is what I'm going to do. And you go, I can't wait that long. You take it into your own hands. That's a deception. When God promises you something, 
stand on the promise. It's not up to you, it's up to him. The timing is up to him. All of it is up to him. Wait upon the Lord. She doesn't. It's sinful. I mean, b- bottom line, this is not a happy moment in, in this story. It's, just, it's, a, it's a sinful moment in this story. Well, okay, God made this promise to us, but look, it hadn't happened yet, so guess what? Maybe, maybe this is what we're supposed to do. Why don't you take my, my slave, and you can have intercourse with her. And she gives Hagar to Abram as his wife. What was Abram's sin? And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now here's what's interesting to me. Does God remove the covenant? He doesn't. In fact, one of the things I love about this story is it's filled with the grace of God. He should have. He'd be like, you know what? I made this promise. What did you do? You immediately break it. You immediately take it back into your hands and do what you're going to do. No, God already knows that Abram is going to do that. He already knows what Sarah is going to do. And he says, you know what? I'm making the covenant anyway. It's my covenant to you and with you. It's a susantry vassal covenant. Verse 3 says, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah's, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband as a wife, and he went into her, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived more sin, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know what? When you take things into your own hands and you start to try to do things your way, guess what? You're going to have a mess, a really mess on your hands. You know why I know that? Because I'm a pastor, and I get to have people walk into my life all the time. Here, this is what's happening in my life. I've created a huge mess. I'm like, yes, you have. <laughs> How did we do that? Because I took things into my own hands. I decided I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, it's a mess. God doesn't depart from you. He doesn't depart from them. But this is a mess, right? Verse 6, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Oh, my goodness. I would not want to build a nation upon a guy like this. God did. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress. The angel of the Lord said, Return to your mistress, submit to her. The angel said to her, I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, you'll bear a son, you'll call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I love these words. He shall be a donkey of a man in his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. You ever read the Quran? Here's what, here's what Islam teaches. Your Bible is... It's been bastardized. It's wrong. It's corrupt. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the slave, is the firstborn to Abram. He is the one who is to receive all God's promises. He is, by the way, the father of the Arabs. And when you go and look at the Dome of the Rock, the rock upon which Abraham sacrificed his son, who? We say, what? Yeah. Who did the, who did the, uh, who did the Arabs say? Ishmael. That scene from the Bible, Abraham is going to sacrifice his first son. It's Ishmael. That's his first son. And it's also believed that Ishmael and um, um, Abram actually built the Cabal, which is in the heart of the Mecca, and uh, stands there to this day, which is considered the most holy of holies, more holy than the Dome of the Rock. 
it's the place that Abram and Ishmael began to live out this covenant that God made with them. Now, take all that into perspective. It kind of makes me laugh then when you actually read these words. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Wow. It kind of plays itself out in history, doesn't it? It really does. So, uh, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen who looks at me. Therefore, the well uh, was called Berlorahai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. It means the well of the living one. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called his son Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. He was 75 when he left um, Haran. So uh, he, at this point in time, is um, 11 years removed from that moment that he received the covenant in the first place. Okay. Let's go to chapter 17. I'm going to keep moving fast. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I'm God, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make your covenant between you and me and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall no longer be a father. You shall be a father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for you will be made a father of multitude of many nations. I'll make you fruitful. I'll establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring. I'll give to you and your offspring after the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And God said to Abram, as as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you will be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It will be a sign of covenant between uh, me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Um, So you take Abraham to this place where he has this son Ishmael. God's still talking to him about this covenant that he's going to fulfill. Go over to verse 15. God said to Abram, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah. It will be her name. I'll bless her. And moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is now, how old is he? A hundred years old. Okay. So kind of followed. He's 75 when he leaves Haran. He's 86 when Ishmael is born. He's now a hundred years old. So there's been a gap of time that that takes place between God saying, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and him now coming and saying, guess what? Ishmael is not it. I told you I was going to do this. And I'm going to do it through your wife, Sarah. So he laughs at God. And uh, Abram said to God, uh, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 18, God said, No, Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. And I'll call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant uh, for offspring for him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. He'll father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you. In this next year. All of this is a story, a journey, right? That the Israelites understand. They're like, oh, yeah. What does it mean to be Israel? What does it mean to be Israel? God made this covenant with Abram. Abram tried to take things in his own hand. God came back to Abram and says, no, it's not about you. I'm the one who made the covenant. I'm doing this. I'm giving you a son. His name is Isaac. And so all of what it means to be Israel is about what God is doing and the question mark. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Go to, go to chapter 21. Chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in her, his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born, whom Sarah bore, Isaac. 
And Abram circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. He was a hundred years old when his son was born. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now go to chapter 25. Abraham has lived a nice life. He's getting ready to die. Go to verse 7. These are the days and years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abram breathed his last and he died in a good old age. An old man and full of years. And was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael. His sons buried him in the cave. Uh, in the field of Ephron. The son Zohar the Hittite. East of Mamre. The field that Abram purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Okay, now go to verse 19. Start again. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord and for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If... If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went in to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger, and the older shall be the, serve the younger. When her day to give birth was completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. They called his name Esau. I'd hate to be named Esau. Don't name your son Esau. It means the hairy one. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, his name was called Jacob. I think it basically means cheater, <laughs> the hill grabber. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, and Jacob uh, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Jacob, Esau because, of his, uh, because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Go to chapter 26. Now there was a famine of land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Isaac went to Gerar and Abimelech, king of Philistines. The Lord appeared and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Do on the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless, bless you. For, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring. As the stars of heaven, you'll give offspring to these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, and my statutes. Okay. I want you to go back over to um, Romans now. And I kind of want you to put that story back together. I think it'll make more sense. Once you take the journey through Genesis, you kind of you get it. Go back to verse number six. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abram, because they are his, his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Why Isaac? God chose it. Right? This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. What's the seed? The seed is faith. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. That was the promise. And not only so, now we jump all the way across Genesis again, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This, this, this is the story. Of, this is our story. This is the story of a God who says, what does it mean to be Israel? It is not about physical birth. It is about spiritual birth. 
when we read these words, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I've hated, God doesn't hate anyone, right? He's not capable of hate. God is love. But what does it mean? I've chosen this one. I have not chosen this one. I've chosen this one. I've not chosen this one. That's what God is saying here. And uh, so we come back down to verse 14. So what should we say? Is this injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. I'm going to kind of bring that to a close today because I just want you to see this. That this question, who is Israel, will continue to be important through the rest of the book of Romans. It's important for us today. Because to this day, within Christianity, there is the belief that when the end times come, the physical body of people, Israel, will be given a second chance. And that uh, they will inherit eternity simply because they are the physical children of Abraham. Luther taught, and I believe that the Bible teaches, this is not true. Because there's never been any point in time when Israel has been about a physical body of people. Other than to say that God chose a physical group of people through whom to bring a promise to the world. But always, both in Old and New Testament, Israel are that body of people who trust the promise of God. As Abraham did. As Isaac did. As the lineage of people who make up Jesus' um, birth family did. And as you and I are called to do today. We'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Lord, as we uh, close out, this, is, uh, this, this scripture just takes you on a journey. And uh, we just went through that pretty fast. But I, I think in a way, just to come back down to what does it really mean to belong to you? And to recognize that it really it's not about our, our, it's not about our birth. It's about who you are in us. That you are the one who works faith. It's not by our effort or our will, but by your strength. And Lord God, as we uh, close out this morning, just ask that you would uh, help us maybe take a little bit of that uh, into the world, that, that conviction uh, that a Paul has, that he's able to say, God, I, I feel heavy about this, that my own people have abandoned you. And Lord, uh, I desire for them to know you. Give us that conviction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great rest of the week.